The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reached out his hand and and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for another opportunity to be here, to take all distractions away from us and to listen to your voice, Lord. Thank you for this passage of scripture. It's real, it's hard, and it's um, it's crazy how we get to see kind of the root of where sin begins, Lord, but We are so grateful that this is not the end of our story, but that it's beginning, Lord. Thank you that your gospel is here and that we get to see redemption even um, through this story, Lord. So I pray that you would open our hearts and that you would let our pride down this morning and that we would be willing to hear whatever you want to tell us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Janie. All right, good morning. Um, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 3 right at the end there. Uh, I just want to welcome you. If this is the first time you're here, my name is Randall, and um, I'm the lead pastor. Um, it, it's, you know, one of the things that, that's truly a joy to me is to be able to say every week, let's open up the Word of God. Let's open up the Bible. And so that's why we're here. It's not about me. It's not about anything else. About, it's about him. It's about hearing from God. And so uh, one of the, the challenges that we set out at the beginning of the year is that we would be going through um, something called the CBR Journal. And some of you have taken on that challenge. And, and what the CBR Journal is, is uh, we're reading through uh, the Bible. And so some of you are reading through Genesis right now and just finished up Luke, now into Acts um, in the month of February. And so from the very beginning of the year, we've been just journeying through reading the Bible. And uh, some of you are saying, man, this is a little hard to take in. It's like, wow, I've never seen some of these stories before. It's a little crazy to read through this. And, um, you know, I think the point of it all is is to remember uh, that God is the hero. Right, like you look at Abraham's life or uh, you look at uh, even Adam and Eve and all of these people that we have in Scripture and you think to yourself, wow, this is really messed up. This is really messed up. And it's just a reminder of, to us that God is the hero. And so um, the series that we're in right now is called The Gospel in Genesis. What's the gospel mean? 
The gospel is simply the good news. The good news that uh, the story's not over, right? The story is about God and he is the hero of the story. And uh, so we're looking at the first family in scripture. And uh, today our text is Genesis 3, uh, 22 through 4, 7. Uh, last week we looked at the first wedding in Genesis 2. Today we're gonna look at the first family. And um, this is how it starts out. The relational strain. Relational strain. Now, um, I don't have to know you to know that probably all of us have gone through at some level a uh, relational strain, uh, particularly within family. And we've got to ask the question, what's beneath the surface of all of our relational, marital, and family strain? Well, Duke uh, University ethics professor Stanley Hauervoss uh, once said this, and I think this is helpful for us today. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right uh, for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks the crucial aspect to uh, marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. And then I, he goes down, the, the primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Now, today we read some of that, right? And, and that statement might seem shocking to some of us today because we've grown up in this culture, like we talked about last week, about how we have romanticized love. Right, that it's, that it's the, the solution to my life, the problem in my life is that I don't have that one person, that perfect person that's gonna come in and be the fulfillment for me, that personal fulfillment that I've always been looking for. And to add on top of that, our, our culture has kind of gotten us to this point where we believe that this person is gonna love me completely for who I am without me having to adapt or change anything. And um, what we see is that that's not true. It's not true because in any good marriage or relationships, uh, what we find is that there's work involved. There's work involved. Uh, you remember last week we talked about this covenant, like the covenant of marriage. And like I talked about, it wasn't the, the word that commitment, the one that we're really afraid of in our generation right now, the C word, the bad word, right? Like it's not commitment, but the Bible talks about covenant, covenant, binding yourself to another person in marriage. And this is two people willingly saying, two people, right? Not just one person, because if it's one person willingly coming into that commitment, that covenant, and then another person coming in, that could be abusive. But it's two people willingly, willfully coming in saying this, I will humbly lay down my life for you. I will adapt and change because I commit to love you no matter what. Right? That was God's intention from the very beginning when we looked at marriage. It was a covenant. And I believe that today, um, the reason why we have a lot of relational strain is because of this idea. I don't have to change. It's the other person who does the other person has to change. 
So if we don't come in, right, both willingly saying, I need to change, I need to adapt, something's wrong, like, you know, I need to grow, then what will happen is a bunch of blame shifting, finger pointing, and this happens in all of our relationships, all of them. It's the root of much relational, marital, and family strife today. And so you see, as Christians, how do we know that Haravas is right? When he talks about this idea of, of not just placing this idea of personal fulfillment, it's all about me and just fulfilling my life and relationships. How do we know that's true? Well, over the past month, we looked at the book of Genesis and what we've seen is that because of the fall, the fall of man, any couple who enters into marriage, family with kids, just single friendships that form, we are all spiritually broken because of sin, which means that we are naturally self-centered and we are bound to have unrealistic and unfulfilled expectations, right? And so, like I talked about, with, with sin, what is sin? If you look at the middle letter, it's I. And what it means is sin is all about me. It's all about me. See, that's what sin has done to us. It has broken us in a way where we think it's all about me. Writer Denis de Rougemont once said, he said, why should neurotic, selfish, immature people suddenly become angels when they fall in love? And I think it's a good question, right? Like, what, what, what happens that should just change us instantaneously like that? And that's why many of us, when we enter into marriage, find out, wow, I'm more selfish than I thought I was. And then what happens when you have kids? It's like, oh, I'm really selfish, right? Like all of these things start to happen. It's just like these different degrees of seeing, wow, how controlled I am by this me first mentality. So what's beneath the surface of all our relational, marital, and family strain? Let's look at our text today, Genesis 3, 22 through 4, 7. And we'll see that today's uh, passage will give us uh, really three reasons as we start to break it down and we look at uh, what sin is, the layers of sin. And here's, here's how it lays out, okay? The first one is it's the reality of what we know. The reality of what we know. Number two, where we focus. And three, how we respond. What we know, where we focus, how we respond. And that's all from today's text. And so we're gonna start in verse 22 and look at the first point, what we know. Here's what it says. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now there has been a transition that's happened here. Uh, Genesis 3 tells us about the fall of man. If you haven't read that before, I encourage you to read through that. Um, But now we're starting to see the effects of sin. And God says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now what is this knowing? Well, as one preacher put it, uh, for Adam and Eve, the dream of being in the garden has now become a nightmare. You see, there was a knowledge that only God is truly fit to know. And because of the fall, we have become like him in knowing good and evil. See, up to this point, all humanity, all humanity had known was good, goodness. And now Adam and Eve are about to experience evil firsthand. Uh, So first, what we need to see is this, that whether Christian or not today, uh, 
we all face the reality of the knowledge of good and evil. And really the nightmarish effects that it can have, right? It's, it's the thing that on a daily basis, you're checking your newsfeed and you're like, this is messed up. This is messed up. This is messed up. Like, you're like, I don't even want to read it anymore because there's so much knowledge of evil that's out there. Right? Our culture is just fascinated by it. You turn on Netflix, it's like the first thing that pops up, something about evil. Right? This is a reality that's out there. So what do we do with it? Well, I got an article this past week from a friend entitled, We're All Fundamentalists Now. It's interesting. Um, here's what it says. It was written in the National Review last week by Samuel James. And here's what he said. He says, the social justice warrior and the conservative Christian may be far apart in theology and politics, but they share the same impulse to be morally wakeful and alert. It's caught my eye. He says, the emerging millennial interest in justice creates a fascinating dynamic for close observers of American culture. Moral relativism, the deconstruction of all objective truth claims was sold as the inevitable future just a generation ago. Not only has relativism failed to conquer our cultural landscape, it has been routed by something close to its opposite, a rigid moral absolutism that launches uh, business boycotts and Twitter shame storms as efficiently as any fundamentalism uh, out there. Elite college campuses today bear more than a passing resemblance to the evangelical colleges they hold in contempt. The main difference is that students enrolling in religious a religious school are told in advance what they are getting. This is interesting. We have to lean into this because here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying that we all have this knowledge of good and evil, right? Whether we want to believe it or not, whether we want to look at it within scripture and say, yes, this is true. There is something in us that's pointing to, whoa, there is a sense of morality because without it, it's chaotic. And, um, you know, as the author's wrestling through this, he's looking at it because he grew up in a, an evangelical home, a Christian home. And he started out the article by talking about how his dad um, took him to the, the go get this video game that he really wanted. He goes up to the counter. Dad looks at the video game and says, this is not appropriate for you. And so in front of the counter, he says, I can't get this for you. And this son said, he was just filled with embarrassment and shame and dad, everybody's playing this game. But then he's looking back and he's wrestling. He's saying, you know what? It was probably the right thing that my dad did this. It's probably the right thing that he was protecting me from this. Right, so there's a reality that all of us have of good, evil, and we're having to wrestle with, okay, what are the implications of that in my life? So that's the first part. But secondly, we see God say this. He says, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is important. We can kind of skim over this, but this is important. What's this about? Well, before the fall, Adam and Eve were able to eat from the tree of eternal life. Um, this was the place where they experienced God's goodness. Um, they, were, they were able to tangibly taste God's love and they were completely fulfilled in life because God was in their life. And so this, this word for eternal isn't necessarily about the extent or the length of time, but it's more about the quality of life. 
the quality of life that they were living within the garden, they were fulfilled because God was there and they, they tangibly had that in their life. And now away from the tree, they will experience the dissatisfaction and the emptiness of life. Now this is the void that they have and we've talked about in this series that they are trying now to fulfill with something else. This is the void that they have because they don't have God's presence any longer like they had in the garden. You see, what was lost? What was lost in the garden? Well, a movie that I really enjoyed uh, that came out not too long ago was Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And in this movie, there are characters. Um, there, there's one character, his name's Jacob. And Jacob is this uh, middle-aged guy. He's uh, just kind of a normal guy, but gets pulled into this really fantastic world where all of the, the magic and all these things are happening, right? And so he's like, his mind's blown and he's just thinking to himself like, how did I get here? What's going on right now? But there's one girl that he uh, sees in this world. Her name's Queenie. And um, he falls in love with her. It's like instantaneous, falls in love with her, sees her. And the thing is, you know, with, with Jacob is he, he's not a part of that world. So he has to go back. And there's a scene where he has to go step out into the rain. And once he steps out in the rain, he forgets everything. And he's like, I know I have to go. I don't want to. But he steps into the rain and then he's standing there and he's looking up and he's closing his eyes. And then Queenie comes in and she comes in for the kiss. And he just, he's standing there and she leaves him and she's gone, but he's still standing there like this. Do you want to know what it was like to lose the garden? That's it. Because as he opened his eyes, she's gone. And that's what happened to you and me. For God, the relationship of falling into his arms is lost in the garden. And so now Adam and Eve are trying to pick up the pieces. And so that's where we get our second point. It's where we focus, where we focus. Uh, verse 23, starting there, and then we're gonna go into four, one through two. And so here's what it says. It says, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. So what's happening here? Well, first, God sends out Adam and it says that he sends him out specifically to work the ground from which he was taken. Um, this is a reminder of Adam's frailty and his need for God. His frailty and his need for God. What, what, what is it that comes in our life that, that we have much frustration, much angst about? It's work. It's work. And, and what, what, what do we find as we, as we work? Because from the be very beginning, God created work to be good. But now because of the fall, there's frustration and dissatisfaction in work. And so what we find here is that there was a, a punishment from Genesis 3 that there's going to be a frustration in work. And so this frustration in work can do one of two things. It can turn us inward and we can start to focus on ourselves. 
or it can be something, a frustration that points us back to God. It points us back to God. See, there's this temptation that all of us face because as we face the reality of work, which was created as good, but now it's in this broken state, there's a temptation to put work before God and family. There's that temptation that's there. Now in 2014, Forrest put out an article entitled, What Comes First, Work or Family? And it gave some interesting statistics. It said uh, 42% of employees feel obligated to check in uh, with work while on vacation and more than a quarter feel guilty using all of their allotted vacation time. Research shows 45% of workers feel obligated to respond to email after hours. Um, This is a reality that all of us face, right? Because we have a smartphone and it's just like everything just follows us wherever we are. I was talking with my wife this week. It's just like, I kind of wish I lived in a different generation than we do now because it's like when you go, when you left work, like it's there, right? It's there, but now it's everywhere. And so this is a reality that we face. And what happens is more and more we have this temptation to put work before God. Before, and to fill that void that we have with work and to place that same thing, work, before family. See, why is this? It's the void. It's the void. It's the thing in us that focuses on the wrong things, right? We, we start to make good things God things. That's what we talked about, idolatry. Idolatry is taking a good thing like work and placing it in the position of God. This is the God of my life. This controls me. And so it just disorders all of my life, right? The way that, that I would put it is, is, is scripturally, as we look at it, it's, it's God and then any marital relationship, right? You're married, your spouse, kids, work, right? That's, that's, that's as we start to look through, but you're like, that's really hard. That's very hard to do. See, many of us are, are wooed into the idea that that's going to be the solution to our life. That's my identity. Uh, I was talking recently with a friend and um, he was telling me, he, he's, he's very successful at what he does. And he told me, he's like, Randall, um, it about ruined my life. It about ruined my, he said, the only thing that saved my life and my family, my marriage, everything was God. It was God. He said, everything was out of order in my life. It was only God. And he said he was sitting down recently uh, by the fire and there was, there was at his workplace and there was a young kid who was looking at him. He says, I don't even know you, but I'm jealous of you. And my friend looked at him and he said, what are you talking about? Why? He says, well, you've you got the nice car. You've got the awesome job. You've got the family. You've got all of those things. And my friend looked back at him and said, if you don't have God in your life, you want to know what that is? He said, it's an empty room. He said, it's an empty room. Because you're going to keep pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and thinking that's going to fill my life. And he says, it's an em- you want me to show, like, if I open the door to you, it's, it, the, the room is empty. That's the void. That's the void. 
See, the other idol that we can create in our lives to fill the void is family, is family. And that can try and take the place of God as well. See, but do you see what Eve says when Cain is born? Do you see what Eve says when Cain is born? She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now this is Hebrew translators. They, they have a lot of trouble like trying to figure out like how to translate that. But basically the, the main point is this. She says, with the help of the Lord. In the midst of her pregnancy and giving birth, she saw that it was only possible because of God and God alone. That's it. Her focus was on the Lord, right? So, so what happens many times is we, we, we take our focus off of God and we think this is what my life is going to be. This is how my family should look. This is how my relationship should look. And that's where we get off course. But for her, her focus was on the Lord. See, what happens when we don't focus on the Lord? We can elevate relationships in our life. We can elevate family and the idea of family in our life. And that can become the God of our life. And what happens when we do this? Unrealistic expectations. We crush those around us because they can't meet our needs. It's the belief that our family can give us our identity, our identity. See, our focus was always meant to be on God first. Matthew 6, talks about this. It says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, all these things will be given to you as well. Right? Like it's the idea and the belief that God knows better than I do what I need. But seek first him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, what God has done. And that comes before all. And so the second point is where we focus. Where are we focusing? Number three, how we respond. Look at verses three through seven. Uh, now, now we see here how sin takes root in Cain's life. And, and it starts with uh, his offering to God. Okay, and so um, we're gonna see this through the text. We're gonna read it here in a minute, but here's what we see that he worked the land and brought an offering to God. This offering must have been something that God instituted for them to do. This was something that we see all throughout scriptures, different places uh, within the Bible. And it says that Cain brought his offering, but Abel brought a sacrifice, a firstborn. Okay, so now look at verses four through five. Here's what it says. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Okay, so what's, what's happening here? Well, they bring their sacrifice and now there's this response from God and there's a response from Cain. What's the problem with Cain's response? Well, if you dig down deep, what it is, it's self-pity. It's self-pity. Remember what I talked about, like the, the relational strain. What is the root of all the relational strain in our life? What, what is it? It's, it's the idea that I am the center of the universe and that it's all about me. And so there's this deceptive thing that pops into Cain's life and he doesn't even realize it, but it's this self-pity. Self-pity. See, Cain was making his offering to God, but his offering 
was more important than God. He was just doing the duty, right? He's just doing the task. Like I'm just checking it off the list. He's bringing it to God. But then what we see and we find is that it was more important than his brother. His work and, and what he sacrificed was more important than his brother. His focus is not on God or even encouraging or applauding his brother and saying, man, I can learn from you and the offering that you're bringing. And I wish I had that type of faith to trust God like that. Now, instead of doing those things, his focus was solely on himself. And this is the root of sin. This is the destructive thing that just creeps into our lives and into our relationships and really becomes something that can be explosive. John Piper says, he says, the reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be so needy, but the need arises from a wounded ego. It doesn't come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. God, why, why aren't you looking at my sacrifice? Why are you looking at Abel, but not me? It is the response of unapplauded pride. Right? It's sneaky. It is very sneaky. And I have to say, it, it has crept into my life many a times. You just feel bad, right? Like, oh man, I just have a really bad lot in life and so poor me. But that's what Cain is wrestling with here. And so what does God do? Like any loving father, but yet the most loving father, he questions Cain. Right? We, don't, we don't see Adam in this interaction here because Adam is his earthly father. We don't see that interaction here of really pinpointing and saying, okay, Cain, there, there's some things in your life that, that are really unhealthy for you and really unhelpful right now. And so I want to really point these things out to you. We don't see Adam in there. And some of you may say, like, I've grown up in a family where I just didn't have that fatherly figure that would be there for me to mentor me and to help me along in life. But we see God as a, a heavenly father who comes in for Cain and says, hey, uh, let, let me ask you something. And so he goes in verse six, he says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? And then in verse seven, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well, what are we seeing here? First, we're seeing God's heart for Cain. God's heart for Cain. God literally asks, he says, is there not forgiveness if you do well? Is, is forgiveness not right there for you for the taking? Gordon Wenham says about this verse, that the, the snake's question was designed to lead man into sin. We saw that in Genesis 3. It was designed to lead him into sin. Gods were intended to provoke a change of heart. See, God wasn't just after his behavior why didn't you bring the right sacrifice? No, he was after the heart because he cared deeply for Cain. And he looked at him and he says, why are you so angry? You know the thing about anger too? It just hides itself really well. Doesn't it? You're like, I'm not an angry person. 
And then you're like driving on the road or something happens and someone cuts you off and you're like, ah, you know, just one of those road rage things. You're like, I'm not an angry person. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. It's very sneaky, very deceptive. It comes into our life. But God's heart for Cain is, I'm going to ask you those questions. And here's Cain's response to God. Itself. Itself. See, see. Gordon Wenham, again, says, sin is personified as a demon crouching like a wild beast on Cain's doorstep. You know what that self-pity is? That idea that my life is not complete and I don't have enough and God's not enough. It's, it's fostering something that will destroy him and it will just destroy his family. And so just some takeaways as we look at this scripture, which is very heavy, but I think very practical to our lives. Let's take an inventory. Let's take a little self-examination. So I'm gonna ask some questions here. The first one is this. What sins are crouching at your door? What sins are crouching at your door? You might not even think that there's anything at your door. You're like, ah, I'm, I'm okay. But like we talked about anger. Is it anger? Is it frustration, bitterness about circumstances in life? And just asking God, like, why, why, do, I, why do I have to be like this right now? Why does my life have to look like this? Because again, as we start to ask some of these questions, what we find are roots of self-pity, right? It's, it's the sin that just kind of hides itself beneath the surface. Is there jealousy, right? It's the jealousy of comparing and saying, well, I, wh- why do they have that and I don't have that? Why'd they get that promotion? I deserved it, right? It's the jealousy that as we look and what we find, like my friend said, is it's the empty room. It's the empty room. We are getting jealous of the empty room and saying, that's what's going to fill the void of my life. Is it greed? It's this idea that you never have enough. Right? Like what, what was it like this, this thing where God asks Cain to bring an offering? What we see all throughout scriptures is the first fruits. What's the first fruits about? First fruits are as, as, a, as a farmer, they wouldn't know what their crop was going to look like that year. So they're coming and saying, okay, whatever's first off the top, I'm going to take that and I'm going to bring that to the Lord and I'm going to offer that to the Lord. It was a faith offering. And so that was the struggle that Cain was wrestling with here because there's greed involved of saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to bring an offering, but I'm not going to bring something that's going to expose that greed in my life. Never have enough. Again, just that bitterness because my life doesn't look as I think it should. I should be married by now. I should have kids by now. Everybody's putting this pressure on me, but we're looking to people more than God. People more than God. Maybe there's just an extreme unforgiveness in our hearts that is just hard to resolve and we, we, we haven't yet. There's that famous quote by Marianne Williamson says, unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. You know what that is? That, that's, again, it's the sin that just wants to creep into our life and destroy 
you and, and all the relationships around you. See, comparing your life on social media is not the solution. These sins can eat inside and destroy if you don't hand them over to God. And so personally today, what sin is crouching at your door? And let's be realistic in saying, okay, God, this is a problem in my life. The second is this, what sins are crouching at your family's door? Right, you might not be married or have kids yet, but even within your own family structure, one of the biggest destroyers of families, and it is an epidemic within our country, is lust and pornography. Lust and pornography. And here's the lie. The lie is that it's only for a season. It's only for a season, right? I'm single. I'm not married. When I get married, then I'll stop. All these like lies that are out there. Well, researcher uh, Patrick uh, Fagan, he's a PhD, completed a, a major study on pornography and called it a quiet family killer. A quiet family killer. He said his study found that 56% of divorces had one partner with an obsessive interest in porn. Uh, the biggest justifier of porn, here's what it is. It's pride and self-pity. It's pride and self-pity. You know, th there's been research that's done that, that, that says that... Um, you know, people say, ah, oh, it just doesn't mess up the relationship. It's, it's not a bad thing. Uh, but actually, there, there's studies that have shown that it, that it does. And um, the reasoning is it's because it's so me-focused. And so what we're finding is that uh, particularly young men are not willing to work on relationships and be someone that would actually pursue marriage or, or be a good spouse because they're not willing to work on the relationship because they have pornography on the side. They don't want to mess with the messiness of relationships. Do you see how this is affecting families? It's affecting our lives. And also, I just want to point out, even within the church, that the family structure can become an idol. The family structure can become an idol. That's why we don't say Grace City is a family church. Because if we lift up family above people that need Jesus, that is an idol. Your goal in life is to pursue Jesus above everything else. Whatever your life looks like, that's my hope for you. And that's our hope for you as a church is that you love Jesus and pursue him because that's the only thing that can fill the void. It's the only thing that can fill the void. Kevin DeYoung said one of the acceptable idolatries among evangelical, evangelical Christians is the idolatry of the family. Here's the thing. If you idolize your kids, you'll never be in a position to lovingly correct them. To lovingly correct them. Right, um, there's this thing even that, that we're just so deceived and I see it all the time where parents think, my kid would never do that. My kid would never do that. I, I'm a pastor, I've read the Bible, my kid would do that. 
right? Like, here's a, I, would do, I would do it, and probably my kids would do it too. And so, like, I'm not deceived by that type of thinking. And so for you, like, I just want to encourage you, like, don't be deceived into thinking, ah, oh, no, never would they do that. Because sin crouches right at the door, and it just wants to take over. And that's how it works. You know, one of the things that I've done recently, you know, that my girls have started to see it. I've got two girls, my son, he's older. And he kind of just knows now that he's just not going to get away with some of the lies that he told before. You know, it's just so like easy, like right now to like kind of pinpoint it. And you're like, ah, I see right through that. And so one of the things he's doing is he's just like actually telling the truth. And I've, I've been surprised by it. I'm like, wow, okay, he actually did do what he said he's going to do. And so I don't think my girls have really picked up on that yet. Um, <laughs> hopefully they will. Um, it's good to say, you know, the truth. Um, I listened to a message this week, uh, Francis Chan. It's really good. If you look up on YouTube, he said, don't focus on the family. Don't focus on the family. What? I thought you were supposed to focus on the family. You know, he said, don't focus on the family. Focus on God. That's what he said. Focus on God. And all these other things God will provide in those areas. But again, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. So my last question is, what is God able to do in your life and in your family? Here's the thing. Who's the hero of this text today? It's, it's God, it's God, it's God. Look at what Cain does. Or look at what, what God does for Cain. He asks him questions. He listens. He gives him advice. And so I've just got to ask, like, let's not just walk away from the message. Ah, oh, that was nice, or that was challenging for me today. But like, what is God saying to me today? And I've got to look inside and say, am I listening to, to him? What he wants for my life. In the meaning of marriage, Timothy Keller says, he says, in Genesis 4, God looks at Cain who is full of self-pity and says to him, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must master it. What's important to understand is that the principle of self in your life is crouching at your door. It wants to have you. It wants to pounce on you. It wants to devour you. And it's up to you to do something about it. God asks you that you deny yourself, that you lose yourself to find yourself. If you try to do this without the, the work of the Spirit and without belief in all Christ has done for you, then simply giving up your rights and desiring will be galling and hardening. But in Christ and with the Spirit, it will be liberating. You want to know how this is possible? It's, it's not only that God is asking the questions, but saying, will you hand it over and I will work in your life in ways that you never thought possible. You know, one of the things that I found out when I, Laura and I, we had our first child, a son. We were told it would be very difficult for us to have kids. It was very hard for us. And when he came, I thought, man, this is, this is, my life's changing. And I remember coming home from work one day and being really exhausted and tired. And Laura's like, hey, can you give Kai a bath? 
And I was thinking to myself, actually, I was thinking about watching ESPN and sitting on the couch. That's what I was thinking about tonight. And so I was, you know, putting on a fit, self-pity. And in that moment, I remember seeing him and and taking him up to the bath and, and thinking to myself, the only reason we have him is because of God. And I remember the Holy Spirit speaking to me and saying, at this moment right now, you don't want to be a dad. And you need to repent. And so in that, as I'm giving him a bath, I'm praying and I'm saying, God, help me. Because if it's not for you, I'm not going to be a good dad. I'm not going to. Because I am so focused on myself. Teach me, Lord, to be selfless. Right? It's not because of anything that we can do on our own strength. It's because of the liberating power of Jesus Christ and what he does in our lives. Who is Jesus? He's the better older brother. You know the really bad older brother? It's Cain. Right? We're going to talk about it next week, but it doesn't end well with Abel. Okay? Who's the better older brother? It's Jesus Christ. It's that Jesus came, died for us, rose from the dead, and gives us the power to be people that we could have never been. And he takes all that relational strain, that all that me-focused stuff, and he nails it to the cross. And he says, that's not you anymore. I have something better. And so if you don't know him, start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I... I know that I could not do it. I can't do it. We can't do it. A lot of the relational strain and things in our lives, it all comes back to one source. It's me. And so help me to change, Lord. Help us to change. And Lord, there there are relationships that we're in right now that Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe we're trying to live in a way where we're honoring you and being selfless and all those things. So teach us how to navigate some of those relationships. Uh, Lord, it's tough. And this is not exhaustive of a study, but Lord, it's, it's a start. And so show us, Lord, where we need to grow personally. Help us to know you and for who you are, God, and what you want to do in our lives. That's beyond us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.